You're listening to True Vine Church Community Podcast. We hope this message sparks and sustains revival with your relationship with Jesus. For more information about True Vine, visit truevinephiladelphia.com. Recently, we've been in a sermon series on the story of the Bible, and one of the things that I've been trying to communicate pretty regularly is that the Bible is not a myth, the Bible is not mythology, uh, that the Bible includes historical accounts of real events. So sometimes I'll, I'll go out of my way to say the flood was a historical event, the Tower of Babel was a historical event, but I want you to understand that What the Bible contributes to the way we think is that the Bible tells us that we live in a spiritual world and that there's a spiritual level to what we experience throughout our lifetime. You will probably have people that will explain to you that this is psychological, this is emotional, this is cultural, this is societal. And all those things may be true because all of those layers exist. Emotions actually exist. They're not a fantasy. They may not always be rooted in truth, but they, they are there. Psychology is the, it's the, it's the study of your thinking and your feeling. You have thoughts. You have feelings. There's a psychological level to everything. Uh, not everything, but there's a like, psychological level There's a cultural level. Cultural forces really do impact the way that the world functions. This is where the Bible comes in. It tells us about what's going on spiritually. It's it's not to negate cultural, cultural realities, psychological realities, emotional realities. It's just to say, here's what's happening spiritually. So I'll give you an example. On September 11th, and I lived 30 minutes from New York when September 11th took place, we could actually see the smoke from the Twin Towers from where we were living. Um, The news told us what happened that day. The news reported the facts. The news interviewed people on the street and told us about the state of their souls. The news uh, suggested certain cultural and political causes The news didn't tell us what was going on spiritually, though. You know what I'm saying? It was only after some time and some discernment and and some ability to kind of see what was going on were we able to tell what was happening spiritually through that time. The Bible gives us spiritual insight into historical events. And this morning, we're going to look at the Tower of Babel, and the Bible's going to give us spiritual insight on this historical event that really took place. And I keep calling it a historical event. This week, I provided you with a few resources in our Church Center app um, from the Smithsonian Institute that talk about, uh, you know, that they believe the Tower of Babel really did exist and really was a real thing. That's, that's the Smithsonian. That's not, you know, ChristianHistory316.net or some, some like, you know, uh, corny Christian website. That's the Smithsonian believes the Tower of Babel was a real thing that really existed, that people really built. What the Bible 
Now, you might hear that and say, well, I already believe that. What the Bible's going to tell us that the Smithsonian won't is what happens spiritually through that event. Does that make sense? The Bible's going to give us spiritual insight to a historical event. That's what we're going to look at today when we look at the Tower of Babel. Before we get into that, I want to help you think and just remind you of the way we've been approaching some of these stories in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. There is a cycle that re uh, develops throughout Genesis, and the cycle has three elemental parts. It is a new world, then a rebellion, then judgment, which starts all over with a new world. So it starts with Adam and Eve, first created, being, first created human beings. They're in a new world. They rebel. Pastor John Eric preached on this several weeks ago. They rebel. They actually co-rebel. It's not just them, but they rebel with the serpent with Satan, so it is a human and angelic rebellion. In Genesis 3, so they're in a new world, they rebel. God judges that rebellion by removing them from the garden. So new world, rebellion, judgment, that's the cycle. They leave the garden, and they are then in a new world again. It's not a brand new world, but it's a new world to them. They're in this new world now outside of the garden, outside of God's uh, relationship with God, they're spiritually dead. They go into this new world, and then we find out about they have two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. Uh, we find out about the first polygamist, Lamech, Noah's grandfather, the first person to treat women like property, who took multiple wives and treated them poorly. And then that season of rebellion is capped off in Genesis 6 when it says that the sons of God, which is a term for angels, the sons of God found the, the daughters of men to be attractive. They married them and produced the Nephilim. This is a very strange story. Kind of this demonic or demon-possessed generation with in rebellious angelic fathers and human mothers. It's a very weird story. After that rebellion, God judges the world. What's he judge the world with then? A flood. He floods the earth. He's going to wipe it clean. He only saves a small remnant, Noah and his family, eight people total. Noah and his family ride out the flood a year and ten days. They get off the ark. What do they walk off the ark to find? A new world. Not brand new, but new to them. A world and a state that it's never been in before. They walk off, they find a new world, and as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, it's just a few verses later. It probably took a few years, but in the Bible it's just a few verses. We find Noah is drunk as a skunk in his tent, naked. One of his sons, Japheth, walks in, and instead of covering his father or hiding that information, he goes and tells his brothers. And, and maybe it's possible some other shady stuff happened in that tent. We, we'll never know. But what we do know is rather than covering his father's shame, he told other people about it. So Noah's other sons, Shem and Ham, grab a blanket. They walk in the tent backwards so as not to see their father. They cover him. They cover his shame, just like Adam and Eve had their shame covered. They cover his shame the same Noah, the same righteous Noah that saved the human race of the ark, he's the one that introduces sin into the new world. We cannot help ourselves. We just, we, we are not capable 
of walking that line perfectly. So the very man that God used to save humanity reintroduced sin into the world. And let me just pause for a moment. I think this is important. Adam and Eve were not subject to any human government, cultural trends, or oppressive systems. There was no cultural momentum that caused them to sin. They just did that as individuals. When Noah got off the ark, was there any evil, wicked society on earth that led him to sin? No. He just did that as as an individual. Listen, I think that cultural realities are real. I think that there is really systemic oppression. I think that all of these things really exist. But before society was ever making people evil, people were making society evil. Those those evil structures, those sinful systems, we made those up. They didn't make us, we made them. The reason that the, the, the cultural trends and the systemic issues exist is because we are, we are fallen. We are broken. I'm going to start using the word broken more. I think that might relate more to what, how people think of sin is we are broken. When broken people create systems, expect the system to be broken. When broken people create structures, when broken people build societies, expect the structures in the societies to reflect our own brokenness. That's, this is one of the reasons I love Jesus. It's like, okay then, if we're broken, which is only going to result in us creating broken systems, there's only been one broken, un, sorry, there's only been one unbroken person, that was Jesus. What would his system look like? Here's what Jesus' system would look like. The first will be last. There's no use fighting for power when all that power makes you a servant, right? This is the system Jesus would build. If Jesus was building a system, the system would look like this. The first would be last. The leaders would be servants. You'd have to get rid of everything you own to follow him, not use him as a means to collect wealth, (laughs) That's the system that Jesus would design. He actually did design that system. It's called the church. That's, that's what a system that is designed by a person who's never been touched by sin would look like. Does that make sense? But see, Adam and Eve were not subjected to an evil system. Noah was not subjected to an evil system. The sin was internal. It didn't come from the outside. It came from the inside because we were already living in a state of brokenness. They built sinful societies, which leads us to the Tower of Babel. Moses and his seven relatives, they get off the boat. Just as God told them to, they repopulate the earth. By Genesis 10, we get this story or this chapter of basically genealogy called the Table of Nations. I'm not going to read it for you, but if you read Genesis 10, you're going to find the generation after Noah and the generation after that and the generation after that. And after a couple of generations, there are 70 people groups inhabiting, at, let me say this, at least 70 people groups inhabiting the earth. This is the repopulation. This is the story of the repopulation of the earth. The earth is becoming repopulated. 70, you can call them 70 families. You can call them 70 people groups. You can call them 70 nations. I don't care what you call them. There's at least 70 and they're listed in Genesis 10, there is one 
people group, one nation, one family that is conspicuously absent in Genesis 10, that is Israel. Genesis 10 does not list Israel. Every family, people group, nation, tribe that it lists is what we would call Gentile or non-Jewish, not from Israel. Israel does not even come into the story yet. There is no Israel yet. It's just 70 Gentile nations or people groups or families. In Genesis 11, we find their agenda. In Genesis 11, 1 through 9, I'm going to read this just kind of and pick our way through it. Now, all the earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So 70 families sounds like a lot. It's like a big church. Now, it could be thousands of people for all I know. We don't really know, but it's, it's 70 groups of people. It's, it's large, but it's small enough that they're all traveling together still. So they travel together, and they end up in a plain, a flat area in the land of Shinar. They say to one another, come, let's make bricks and fire them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. This is a new technology to them, the brick very advanced. Prior to that, they just used stone. So whatever shape the stone is, you got to deal with that. The idea of mortar, using tar for mortar, kind of new for this period of time. This is new technology for them. This is the iPhone 14 of, of their generation, brick and mortar. And they begin to build a tower, a tower which is probably like a ziggurat. You might be able to see a, a version of it when the graphic when, that we have for the sermon is... Uh, an illustration of what a ziggurat would look like. They say, come, let's build ourselves a city. So rather than moving, they want to settle. They're, they are wandering the earth, but they want to settle. Let's build a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of all the earth. So they want to build this tower. Why? Well, a couple reasons. One that's not in the passage, so this is just a suggestion. We don't know this for sure. They did just go through a global flood. Building a tower might be their way of saying, you won't get us this time, God. We'll have a tower that'll withstand this flood. It'll go all the way up to the heavens. We'll preserve ourselves. Now, we don't know that that's what they thought, but it does kind of make sense. Now, if they thought that, then they obviously rejected the fact that God made a covenant and said, I'll never flood the earth again. And they also must have thought that they can avoid God's judgment through their own ingenuity, which you can't. There's no tower you can build. There is no bunker that you can live in. There is no ammo that you can stockpile that's going to save you if God decides it's time. Okay? But the stated purpose in verse 4 is that they will build a tower that reaches heaven and they will make a name for themselves. When ancient peoples built towers and temples, it was in the name of their God. Well, who did they want to build it in the name of? Themselves. They wanted to make a name for humankind. Look how, look how ingenious, look how creative, look how advanced we are as human beings. We have rocket ships, sorry, not rocket ships, towers <laughs> that go to heaven and picking up what I'm putting down? Okay. So they have this new technology. It's, they're making a name for They're celebrating themselves, patting themselves on the back. 
And then uh, verse 5, now the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the men had built. The Lord said, behold, they're one people. They all have the same language. Remember, they have a common ancestor, Noah. They have the same language. This is what they started to do, and now nothing which they plan to do will be impossible for them. It's, it's interesting how unifying selfishness and pride can be. God says in verse 7, come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over at the face of all the earth, and they stopped building the city. So God says to somebody, come, let us go down and confuse their language. Who is God talking to? He's talking to other spiritual beings. He's not talking to you and me. He's not talking to Moses. He's not talking to Noah. He's talking to other spiritual beings. The technical term for this group is called the divine council. We're just going to call them created spiritual beings or lesser spiritual beings. You might know them as angels. They're not called demons yet, but we're getting there. Less, we're just going to call them lesser spiritual beings, some level of angelic being. He says, we're going to go down, we're going to confuse them, and we're going to scatter them because if they keep this up, we're going to have problems. So these spiritual beings go down. It says in verse 8, the Lord scattered the people abroad from there all over the face of all the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it was named Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth, and we find out later that Babel is Babylon, the, the city that represents human wickedness and divisiveness, the city Babylon, the, the, the people of Babylon that try to gobble up God's people Israel and cr crush them. This is where it started. Babylon is Babel. It just adds a syllable at the end of its name later. The king of Babel was Nimrod. Awesome name, right? <laughs> Nimrod means rebel. The name Nimrod means rebel. Their king was a rebel <laughs> and uh, led this building. Now, these, uh, this one thing real quick. This is, to me, this is so helpful. I don't know if it'll be helpful to you. Adam and Eve not only rebelled against God, they participated in a co-rebellion where they worked with Satan to rebel against God, and God came down swiftly with judgment, removed them, right? But when Cain killed Abel, God only judged Cain. He didn't wipe the whole earth clean. When Lamech sinned, God didn't wipe the whole earth clean, but it was when the sons of God, angels had children with human women, the and that created the Nephilim, that's when God pulled the trigger on judgment. It, when there was a human angel co-rebellion, and we're about to have that again with the Tower of Babel, these lesser spiritual beings come down, they deceive the people and scatter the people, and then here comes God's judgment. So this is what I just want to observe from the Bible God pulls the trigger on large acts of judgment when the rebellion is a joint effort between humanity and rebellious angels. Not, not every single sin gets a flood. Not every single sin leads to d this diaspora. 
But when humans as a whole are joining with rebellious angels as a whole, that's when God pulls the trigger and says, we need a large-scale judgment right now. So that's kind of a theme that emerges. Now, let me summarize. I just want to summarize Genesis uh, Genesis 11 before we get to Deuteronomy 32. At this point, people as a whole have decided to rebel. God's discipline or judgment on them is to hand them over to the care of lesser spiritual beings. He says, I'm not going to take these people anymore. I'm handing them over to you. Go divide them up. He actually, he talks about this in Exodus 33. This is a lesser known story of the Bible. After the golden calf and all the people grumbling in Exodus, if you know this story, God says to Moses, I am not going into the promised land with you. I will send an angel instead. Which is, he's now threatening the very thing that happened here. I'm handing you over to an angel because if I stay here, it's going to be judgment. You've picked another god, a golden calf. I promised you would go to the promised land and I cannot break my promise, so you will go into the promised land under the care of an angel, but I am not going with you. I think a lot of people would have said, okay, sorry God, but I gotta get that milk and honey. This is what Moses said. Don't send us if you're not going with us. I would rather be in the wilderness with you than in the promised land without you. I would rather not have the milk and the honey and miss your presence. So he says, God says, sorry, Moses says to God, may your presence go with us. Please reconsider. And God is so moved by that. This is a crazy thing about God, an all-knowing being that reconsiders. Moses says, then I will go with you, and I'll give you rest when we go into that promised land. So God, at times, hands over rebellious people to lesser spiritual beings. And what he's, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but he's essentially saying, you chose this. Adam and Eve, you chose to listen to a lesser spiritual being. So here you go. You wanted this? Here you go. You chose to worship idols. You chose to worship the gods of the other nations. Here you go. And I'm handing you over. I want to share a quote with you from a scholar named Craig Keener that interprets this passage this way. He says, God divided the nations among 70 subordinate created divine beings. This is God handing off the Gentile nations to lesser beings. Now, Moses wrote Genesis 11. Moses also write, wrote uh, Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 is going to be up on the screen for you. Deuteronomy 32 explains what happens in Genesis. Let me just read this. Uh, this is verses 7 through 9. Moses says, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders, they will tell you. That's just a long way of saying, Hey, remember... Think back. The first word is remember. Verse 8. What are we remembering, Moses? We're remembering when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. Inheritance is always land. So when, when did God give the nations their land? At Babel. He spread them out. 
When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Sons of God, again, biblical term for angel in the Old Testament. So it's saying here, God divided the people at Babel, spread them out based on some sort of angelic assignment. This many angels gets these people, this many angels gets those people. Don't even bother trying to figure out the number. I don't know it. Craig Keener said it's 70. That might be the case. I don't know for sure. In verse 9, it says, But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted inheritance. So this is, I love this. I love this about God. 70 families. Israel's not in that list somehow. Genesis 11, God separates the 70 families. He hands them over to lesser spiritual beings. They separate them. And then Genesis 12, verse 1, says this. Then the Lord said to Abram. That is the point that God says, I've handed off all these other people. I pick you, Abraham. You're mine. I'm yours. And that is the beginning of the story of Abraham, who had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob, whose name became Israel. And God told Abraham, all these other nations, they can come back to me, but they can only come back to me if they go through one of your descendants. And we know that descendant to be Jesus. That should have been easier. It's church. Just say Jesus if you don't know. (laughs) All the nations that were scattered, they have a chance to come back to the God who they forgot. They have a chance to come back, but they got to come back through Abraham's family. And who's the premier figure in Abraham's family? Not David, not Isaac, Jesus. They have to come back through Jesus. We'll get to that again in a, in a moment. Let me go, continuing Deuteronomy 32, verses 16 through 18. He says, remember Babel. They stirred him, God, to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. This is what Moses is writing here. At some point, it may have been immediately, it may have been later, at some point when the people scattered with these lesser spiritual beings, they began worshiping the lesser spiritual beings. And for the first time in the Bible, we get a name for those lesser spiritual beings in verse 17. It is Shadim or demons. This is the first time a demon is mentioned in the Bible, right here. These lesser spiritual beings that God handed the nations over to, either the people chose to worship them or the lesser spiritual beings rebelled and called for worship. We don't know. But that's when this, that's when All these different people with all these different languages living in all these different places started worshiping all these different gods. And you get the invention of demonic religions that are worshiping other gods and it provides an explanation for us. Now, another thing I I just... Man, so many things we learn about the Bible aren't in the Bible. (laughs) Revelation... 
13 makes it very clear that when Satan rebelled, a third of the angels rebelled with him. So here's my question. What passage did that happen in? At 9 o'clock, someone was like, Genesis. I said, you can stop looking. There isn't one passage that says all of the angels rebelled at this point. There's a passage about the fall of Satan. But what we have instead in Genesis 1 through 11 is multiple angelic rebellions. The first one is Satan misleading Adam and Eve. That's one. So, so here's what I was going to suggest. You probably can't find one passage that says all one-third of the angels rebelled at once. What you can find is three passages of a couple rebelling. Satan rebels. We see that in Genesis chapter 3. Then later we find some of the angels decide that they want to sleep with women. That's another rebellion. Later we see this, Tower of Babel. These lesser spiritual beings receiving worship, they're called demons. That's a third rebellion. There's multiple rebellions which accounted for a third of the angels rebelling against God. We don't know that it all happened at once. I can find three stories where it happened. So it's possible this was wave upon wave of rebellion that there came these moments where human beings and angels decided let's rebel together. And that's when God said, well, then I'm going to bring very harsh judgment. So... Um, let me summarize this really quickly before I move on. Here's what I'm saying, that at the Tower of Babel, God's judgment was to divide the people and hand them over to lesser spiritual beings. At some point, they began worshiping those lesser spiritual beings. That's why in Daniel 10, Daniel talks about a, a spiritual ruler called the Prince of Persia. Like a, it's like a demon that's over all of Persia. He talks about a spiritual ruler called the Prince of Greece, who's like a demon that rules over all of Greece. Starts, Daniel starts to introduce these princes, and there's a prince over Israel named Michael, who's an who's a obedient angel. This is all in Genesis 10. I'm not making any of this up. I want to show you one more slide from Clinton Arnold who's commenting on um, Deuteronomy 32. Clinton Arnold says, this passage is best explained as teaching that all the nations of the earth are given into the control of angelic powers. So, Pastor Jim, are you saying that at the Tower of Babel, when all the nations scattered, rebellious angels had something to do with that, and now they're all deceived and confused by these rebellious angels? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying, actually. Now, this is just enough to give you nightmares. So, amen, you're dismissed. No, there, but here's the thing. This is not where the story ends. We couldn't call this a story of the Bible if I ended it there. Because this conflict is actually resolved, and it's resolved at the cross. At the cross, it says in Colossians 2, and there's four things that the New Testament teaches about this conflict. If you can, Perfect. There are four things that New Testament teaches about this conflict. The first is that Jesus defeated these spiritual rulers and authorities at the cross. In Colossians 2, and I'm just paraphrasing it, but you can find it in Colossians 2, 13 through 15, it says that on the cross, Jesus disarmed and also publicly humiliated these spiritual rulers, these, these lesser beings that have deceived the nations and received demonic worship 
Jesus both disarmed them and publicly humiliated them. Actually, the implication is he stripped them naked. He disarmed them. What's disarm? It means he took away their weapon. He took away their power, right? He publicly humiliated them by, by stripping them naked. And then this is what I love about Jesus. When it looked to us like Jesus was powerless, he was making them powerless. When it looked to us like Jesus was being stripped naked, he was stripping them naked. He defeated them by subjecting himself to death. Jesus did not puff out his chest. He did not say, do you know who I am? He subjected themselves. And what in the, what in the natural looked like, look at Jesus disarmed and naked, was actually a victory. Look at Satan disarmed and naked. Jesus defeated these powers at the cross. That's when the victory took place. The victory didn't, place when, didn't take place when you raised your voice praying. The victory didn't take place when you anointed your house with oil. The victory didn't pl- take place when you finally understood it because you read a book. The victory took place at the cross. That's when Jesus defeated, disarmed, publicly humiliated these angelic rulers. Now, how do you and I participate then in that? Well, get hyped up, listen to worship music, pray loud. Not quite, that's not not that far off actually, but this is what Ephesians 6 says. It says that we defeat these rulers and authorities when we put on the whole armor of God. This is what Ephesians 6 actually, it talks about the principalities and authorities Jesus defeated them on the cross. What did he do? He disarmed them and publicly humiliated them by stripping them naked. What are we supposed to do? Take up the whole armor of God. We put on the helmet of salvation. We are held together by the belt of truth, protected by righteousness, prepared to share the gospel, defended by faith, secure in our salvation, and wielding the word of God. Also, pray a lot. So let me just get this straight. So Jesus took away the weapons and stripped naked the enemy. He gave us a sword and armor, right? They're naked, we have armor. They're disarmed, we're armed. You would think then we'd be doing a little better than we are. We are fighting a naked disarmed foe, the only way that they could beat us is if we let them. Is if we don't use the sword of the spirit or don't put on the helmet of salvation. You know what I mean? uh, Okay, my daughter's not here. Two nights ago, we caught a mouse in a mouse trap in my my daughter's room. You know, this mouse is like, you know, this big. Well, You'd have thought the thing was 12 feet tall, by the way, my daughter reacted. She, she's laying in bed, and she can hear it, crying for help. Please help me. And, and she comes running into our room at 5 in the morning. There's a mouse. And it's, this mouse is not standing over her with a machete. This mouse is in a trap. And she's terrified of it. That is us. When it comes to spiritual warfare, we have this disarmed, naked enemy, and we're like, 
We have armor. We have weapons. We have the Holy Spirit in us. Is the Holy Spirit greater than demons? Yes. So spiritual warfare should not scare us. I don't want to get like carried away in it. I don't want to say there's a demon behind every bush, but I just I have found that not too many Christians have that problem. I've found that more Christians have the problem where they don't know what to do. Not that they think about it too much, but they think about it too little. So we defeat them by putting on the armor of God, and then here's the third thing that the New Testament teaches us. All those people groups that were scattered, worshiping other gods, which, by the way, unless you have been a faithful Jewish believer of Jesus your entire life, which I don't know that any of you have, myself included, you were one of those deceived people groups. You're the recipient of someone who brought the message to your ancestors or you directly. And so uh, as we take the message to those scattered people groups, we're going to encounter, we're going to go to them and say, stop worshiping this God and start worshiping Yahweh and his son Jesus. That is spiritual warfare. See, not evangelism is not you creating an acronym for the essential elements of the gospel that you can memorize. <laughs> I mean, that might be helpful to some degree, but evangelism is always spiritual warfare. You're convincing someone to stop worshiping one God and start worshiping another God. Even if they're an atheist, they probably have some level of belief in themselves or secular humanism or something like that. Evangelism has a spiritual warfare aspect to it. When we send missionaries out, we need to understand that they are walking into hostile territory. And I'm not talking about the people. I'm not talking about the culture. I'm talking about that there are demonic forces at play that do not want to see the kingdom advance. And we're essentially, in, in our lifetime, watching the shift where the, even the United States is becoming hostile territory. While I, for, this, for my own convenience, don't like that, for the sake of our, the purity of our faith, I welcome it. I, the purifying impact of persecution, I welcome it. I, I don't, I'm not signing up for it. I'm not running headlong into it. I get like there's a cost, but if that's the point we're at, then that's the point we're at. I recently heard someone refer to persecution as the seminary of the Holy Spirit. It purifies us, teaches us things we wouldn't learn in comfort. So we go to these other nations, and th from these other nations, representatives from all of these scattered groups of different languages and different places they are redeemed and brought back to the God of Abraham through his, Abraham's descendant, Jesus. So we're reversing what happened at the Tower of Babel. We're bringing people back into relationship with God, but it's happening only through Jesus. Not through these other gods, not through these other beliefs, but through the Son of God, who is a descendant of Abraham, fulfilling God's promise and covenant to Abraham. Okay, is this making sense so far? Okay, I want to just take a few minutes to show you why this matters. If you've ever traveled and felt like 
the spiritual atmosphere was different in one place than it is in another place, you're not crazy. (laughs) It might very well be that the spiritual atmosphere, that might not just be the humidity messing with your hair. You know, like it it may not just be the culture. It may not just be, it, it could be all of those things. It could be the climate. It could be the culture. But I'm just saying is the Bible tells us also what's happening spiritually. You may have, you may be discerning a territorial reality to the warfare that is in place in a specific region. Um, if we find that for some reason sin and violence keep popping up in the same places, maybe there is a spiritual explanation. I mean, yes, it could be political, yes, it could be sociological, yes, it could be psychological, but maybe there's also a spiritual element too. And these are not mutually exclusive, by the way. I would just say it starts with the spiritual and then everything else is downstream of that. A couple years ago, some of you participated in this, at the Taconi Library, on the steps of the Taconi Library, one day, there was a, a KKK rally on the steps of the Taconi Library. And that obviously put everyone in the community on edge. A few days later, there was an Antifa rally on the same steps. Imagine living across the street from that. A few days after that, a little boy was caught in the crossfire of a shootout. He was shot in the head. He did survive. That all happened in like 10 days. At some point, you start to ask, why is this all happening in the same place? What, what's going on here? What has, is it just cultural? Is it that there's not, a pol- not enough police paroling, uh, patrolling this intersection? You know, libraries are known for sin. Uh, that's a joke. I can read. Why the, why the public library? So back then, we called, it, we called this event Bless Tacconi. About 25 of us went over there on a one night, a Wednesday night. First thing we did when we got there was knock on the neighbor's doors to let them know we're not the Klan, we're not Antifa, we're not here for a protest, we're here to pray. Because I, I was just putting myself in their shoes like another group of people on the steps, I do not like where this is headed. So we knocked on their doors and let them know we're here to pray, you're welcome to join us, this will be peaceful. Some of them did join us. We got on the steps. We were holding hands in a big circle of about 30 people at that point. The director of the library comes out, wants to know what we're doing, understandably concerned. (laughs) Wants to know what we're doing. We explain uh, to the director of the library. He joins us. Comes, takes our hand. I have no idea this person's like religious background. Didn't pray out loud, but held hands, joined us. We took communion on the steps of the library. We blessed the place. We left. That was seven or eight years ago. Since then, to my knowledge, there have been zero issues. No violence, no protests, no shootings, no robberies. I mean, I'm not... Stuff happens everywhere. Not everything is 
because of a demonic issue. I mean, there can always, there can always be a car accident or something, but I'm just saying there has not been recurring issues. In fact, that library, almost immediately after we prayed there, was approved for a million-dollar grant and is one of the eight nicest libraries in Philadelphia now. I'm not saying that that happened because we prayed. I'm saying that God had a very big plan, and we get to play a very small part in it. Well, we did this again recently, last week. We had something called Bless Mayfair, because there's an intersection in Mayfair very close to where I live, at Roland and Ryan, where there have been five murders in the last 18 months. There was a shooting outside of Lincoln High School uh, where an innocent bystander was shot in the head while he was driving through the intersection. He died. Some of you heard about a sanitation worker who was ambushed a few months ago. That was at the same exact place. And then just last month, there was a triple homicide there that we heard uh, from our house. Why at the same intersection? A really an inconspicuous intersection. It's, it's not outside of a, you know, like a, 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 it's not a drug spot. It's just a, this random intersection. So last week, 12 of us from four churches gathered there. We called it Bless Mayfair. Bless Philadelphia, Bless Taconi, Bless Mayfair. We gathered it there. We prayed at that intersection uh, four churches represented. We did the same thing. We did a little walk. We blessed that place. We prayed against whatever issues were there. We took communion. It's only been about 10 days, so we're waiting to see what kind of impact that made. But we're hoping that it had a similar impact as when we were active in Taconi. So, March 16th, a few weeks from now, we have been asked by several churches in Philadelphia to do the same thing in Frankfurt. We're calling this Bless Frankfurt. It's a part of Frankfurt. It's actually very close to what many of you call Bridge and Pratt, which is not a real place. The Frankfurt Transportation Center, okay, which is what those of us that don't live in fairy tales call it. It's close to the Frankfurt Transportation Center in Frankfurt. It's uh, Frankfurt and Dyer. We're going to meet there. Is that a dangerous place? That's why we're going there. We're going to take every precaution, but no one else is going. The police are not going to go there and pray at the corner. You think the mayor's going to go take communion and plead the blood of Jesus there? That's the church's job. Listen, I hope the mayor does his job. I hope the police do their job. I hope the school district does its job. But their job is not to steward the spiritual atmosphere. That's the church's job. We're just complaining about everybody else not doing their job, but we're not doing our job. If anything, they should be complaining to us. Is it? Okay, Whew. take a deep breath. <laughs> We're going to do this Thursday, March 16th at 6 p.m. We will have 80 minutes of daylight. It's after daylight savings. I plan this out so that we have a little, because when we try to do Bless Mayfair, it was very hard to get people to come because if we did it during the day, people were at work or school or whatever, or watching Maury or, you know. But if we did it at night, people were scared. And I, listen, I understand both of those, but let me just push back a little bit. If you really believe that there's a spiritual layer to our city, and that that spiritual layer, if it's unchecked, is going to lead to people losing their lives, 
what, are we just going to like let that happen? Like, because it's cold? Because it's dark? I'm not saying everybody needs to be there. In fact, I want to give you a couple ways to participate. Some of you, I'm sure, will join us for this. I don't want 100 people anyway. We will, we will get robbed. <laughs> I want to just slip in and slip out unnoticed. I'm wearing the worst jeans I have. You know, like I'm not, no watches, no nothing. <laughs> but we're not trying to get, the bigger is not necessarily better, but we do need people to participate. If you're not able to be in person, can you pray from home at 6 p.m.? Pray for the people that are going, because there will be people that are going. And we'll have other churches. Go ahead, Kelly Ann. We're meeting there. Frankfurt and Dyer. <laughs> Everyone laughs when I say that. No, we're meeting, the, well, we're not marching there. There's a Dunkin' Donuts. There's a Walgreens. If you could take the train and get there if you wanted to. If you, I'll tell you what. If you need to ride with someone, talk to me. I have a minivan because I roll that deep. Uh, you can ride with me. You can ride with me. I got six seats, okay? There's stale Cheerios in the back if you want a snack. Goldfish. We're going to go pray there, okay? We're going to pray at Frankfurt and Dyer. We'll take communion at the intersection. We're not bringing a bullhorn. We're not making signs. We're not marching around and blowing a shofar. We're going to go in because we don't need to make a show to let anyone know. We're, this is a spiritual thing. You know, we're, we're going to go in, we're going to pray, we're going to take communion, and we're going to leave. And then we're going to see. I mean, well, they, the city tracks the stats on this. So we'll be able to see in a year did things change. But I, I mean, let me just say this. This was not my idea. We were asked to do this by about 50 other churches. Because we're the closest church. We're not, I mean, Frankfurt's not exactly our neighborhood. It's a couple minutes away, but we're the closest church that does this kind of thing. So we're going to do that on March 16th. But here's, here's the other application thing that I'd like to do. I want to pray for Philadelphia. I've lived here, you guys know I'm not from here, but I've lived here long enough to get a sense of what the spiritual atmosphere is. I'm not from here, but my kids sure are. They don't use prepositions when they talk. They're not done with their homework, they're done their homework. Uh, they eat water ice, they like soft pretzels, they like the eagles, I mean, they, all that stuff. They say John, they call themselves young bulls, all that stuff. My kids are from here. This is my city. This is where I live. I've bought in 100%. Um, last week, I was at a church in the suburbs, and they were trying to bless Philadelphia. <laughs> they said, we're going to... Hey, we're here, we're going to pray for Philadelphia, the, the poorest big city in America. I was like, ooh. I thought you were going to pray for us, not make fun of us. And then they said, yeah, but we love Philadelphia, the most violent city in America. And I was like, but it's not. <laughs> it's not even in the top 25. You have this false perception that you keep telling people that's not true. Of course, I said this to myself because I don't want to get in trouble and kicked out of another church. So, but it's kind of like, 
It's a horrible illustration. We're going to pray for my wife while she's dumber than a box of bricks. We're going to pray for my, bro, you know, my, my, my neighbor. Oh, they're so ugly. You, know, like, you don't have to just always say junk. You know what I mean? How about this? We're going to pray for Philadelphia, the birthplace of America. We're, we're going to pray for Philadelphia, one of the most diverse places in America. We're going to pray for Philadelphia, one of the largest cities in America. We're going to pray for Philadelphia because if Philadelphia turns, the rest of the country will turn. What if we said that instead? What if we prayed that way? Because, listen, I'm not denying that we have, a, we have a violence issue. We have a poverty issue. We have a corruption issue. They're all there. But what, why are we identifying our home that way? When there's so many other things we could say that are, we can bless, that we can pray for. So I just want to, this is how we're going to wrap up. We're going to pray for Philadelphia. I'm going to ask a couple of you if you'd pray for the city. We don't all have to, but I think many of you probably will. We're just going to bless the city, pray for the city, and then uh, once we've let that run its course, we're going to wrap up. I want to pick up where Kellyanne's prayer left off. There's a guy named William Penn. You may know him as the guy that lives on top of City Hall, the founder of Pennsylvania. He prayed for Philadelphia in 1684, and this is what he, this is the last sentence of his prayer. It's longer than this, but this is the last thing he said. I pray for Philadelphia that our children may be blessed and our people saved by his power. This is not something that we invented. We have just kind of rediscovered this. From the foundation of the city, centuries ago, Blessing the children, which is the generations, and praying that the people of Philadelphia would be saved by God's power. We can take that and make that our own prayer. This is called the William Penn's Prayer. You can Google it. It's actually on a plaque down at City Hall. So Jesus, we pray. We're not the first ones to pray it. We won't be the last ones to pray it. That our children, generation after generation, would be blessed and that you would save this city by your power. We know that you will do that by saving person, a person at a time, individual by individual, but that it is possible that a critical mass could change the culture, that that type of individual spiritual renewal would lead to a full-scale social change in the city. Bless our children, save our city by your power, I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 I want to thank you for joining us this morning. Sorry I went a little long, uh, but I'm just still upset about the Super Bowl. Oh, so I don't want to go home and there's no football. 